This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Pete Zimmerman's your producer. Farron Dogs is our guest, the founder and CEO at Harrison Wallace Financial Group. Uh, the bad news is the good news is still good, so the Fed is probably going to look harshly on this interest rate situation. Is that a fair read, Farron? Yeah, it seems to be that way, John. Thanks for having me again today. I appreciate it. And yes, it, it's um, what's good for the Good for the economy is bad for the market and vice versa. And, um, you know, as I've talked about in the past, you know, really six to nine months is everything is being, all the inflation is being fought from the demand side. And and I really don't see that we're going to get any relief in this for a while um, until we start to maybe see some things either really decelerate from the demand side, from the consumer or if we start getting some supply-side help on this. And it just seems like Groundhog Day all over again every, every month, you know, depending on what the Fed is going to look at. So, I'll ask you more specifically about that in a second, but is the situation untenable now? I mean, is it so bad now that draconian measures, are, you know, what, what's draconian? 25, 50 basis points. But, I mean, it, is, it so bad, <laughs> is it so bad now that it does need... Um, you know, intense treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what they're trying to do is, I think the expectation originally was that one more one more increase in March, given the deceleration that we kind of saw in, in inflation back in December. But then when all the other information in January came out pretty hot with inflation, they're reading this as what we're doing is not fast enough and it's not severe enough. And so... My expectation now, it would be March will probably be a 50 basis point move. Um, and I would expect them to tighten really up through the June, the June meeting unless they really see some significant, you know, changes yeah. in the numbers. Um, you know, with Europe's, Europe's inflation pretty high, uh, much higher than ours, actually. But, um, you know, the consumer is still strong. We're still seeing housing um, really you know, not we don't have as much of a shortage, but we're still seeing some pretty good building. We're still seeing some pretty good movement in the housing market. It's kind of regained a little bit of traction. And, you know, I look back to like the 1990s when, you know, higher interest rates did coexist with good equity markets. And that can happen. I think as a as an economy, we just got so hooked on low interest rates. And now it's it's just a, a kind of a, a gut kick, <laughs> even though it's really not, yeah. um, you know, because people just got used to two and a half, three and a three percent interest rates. But I can tell you, my fixed income investors are pretty happy to be getting CDs at uh, one year, five percent these days. So it does go both ways. And, you know, I think the earnings will continue to remain pretty solid. Uh, the unemployment picture, I don't really expect that to change. Um, I think we saw a lot of people drop out of out of the market after COVID. Uh, they decided to take early retirement, and maybe they're just picking up small part-time jobs to um, have a little extra spending money. So uh, I'm not sure that we have that universe of employees that we had pre-pandemic. Yeah, I, I think all of us have noticed that or are that. But just real quick, then walk me through this. If the Fed increases the to fifty extra basis points, it's more expensive mm-hmm. for businesses to borrow money, and that mm-hmm. hurts productivity or production. It hurts expansion. 
Um, so how is that beneficial to us then? Well, I think what they're just trying to do is they're, they're trying to control all the demand by making it more expensive, not only for companies, but for the consumer right. to, be, to be acquiring goods. And obviously, if we have less, less money chasing fewer goods, then that's good. You know, that should reduce those prices. Um, you know, on the corporate side, which you're citing, um, yeah, it is going to be, it's going to pinch the earnings picture. And that typically is not so great for stocks. And so it's unfortunate that, you know, they have to, to do this to slow an economy down when really a healthy economy should be one of growth. And it seems like we're so focused on um, just trying to slow things down, slow things down, as if that's our only bullet, so to speak, yeah. to, uh, to hit inflation. I think that's the frustration I've been expressing the last few months. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. This is just, this is the one big right. tool in their box. <laughs> Farron Dogs is the founder yeah. and CEO of Harrison Wallace Financial Group. I'm going to call you again, Farron. It's nice to talk to you today. All right. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Have a great week. Jay Notes is the president at WorkingNation.com is the website. I've, boy, we're learning all sorts of new phrases these days, Jane. What is productivity paranoia? <laughs> hey, John. Happy Hi. Tuesday. Yeah. Productivity paranoia came up in a LinkedIn post this week, and it basically is when uh, as they're de- as they define it, it's when uh, employees who are in person in the office start to distrust that the employees that are hybrid or fully remote are doing their job. Now, this is really interesting. You know, this was this came from a survey uh, that a group called Envoy did, and and what it was really about is this this distrust that's developing between coworkers. It's not managers saying they're not being productive. It's their peers. Pretty scary. Is there any validity to that concern? Well, look, I think it I don't that the, the answer the direct answer to your question is I don't know. But the the thing in my mind that it sparks is number one uh, people are are having a little remote or hybrid envy. We knew going into this recovery that not everyone could work remotely. And you and I talked probably six months ago about what are employers going to do for those employees who can't have that kind of flexibility? What else are they going to do to keep them happy and to keep them in place? I mean, but this the second thing this really brings up to me is managers don't know how to manage people in hybrid and remote roles, because if they did, they'd be creating a culture that talks about, you know, the accomplishments of these workers with their peers. And obviously they're not, or at least this survey says they're not. So what does that sound like? Hey, everybody on a Zoom chat, um, Joe here, who's been working home since 2022, uh, just hit his sales goal. Let's give it up for Joel, something like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's going to vary. Those people that you can mark productivity by 
sales goals or numbers of uh, calls they do. Think of a call center, you know, numbers of calls that they make. But it really takes a creative manager to figure out what does productivity mean in this job. And then they have to do exactly what you said, John. They have to find ways to demonstrate that in-person people, you know, are really being productive and remote people are really being productive. Not an easy task. And maybe it looks different, too. That is, I think there is validity to the idea that people that are working from home Monday and Friday or however they're doing it, um, they're watching a little TV. Maybe they went for a half-hour walk after a sales call. I don't get to do that in my office. I don't get to go into the kitchen and have a sandwich. I mean, life is breezier there, or at least it can be, and I suspect it is. Um, but, But maybe... That doesn't matter, right? So just because their life is a little nicer doesn't mean it's wrong for the business. I, I think that's where we are. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the I think the issue is if I decide to go walk my dog during what would be traditional hours, I also may decide not to stop at the end of my official day, but to work in to bleed into my other time, my personal time, because I took that walk with my dog during work hours. The the question is, how is the job getting done? And I I really think. Uh, you know, I'm really nervous. And, you know, I, I don't like big brother kinds of things. I'm very nervous about this employee tracking software yep. that that employers are using, you know, counting how many times I'm hitting my keyboard, counting how many times I'm online. And you and I both know there's ways to get around that. But you think about the the destruction that does to trust the destruction that does to my feeling a part of this team. And, you know, right now, more than 50% of employers are using some kind of tracking software, some kind of, of software that monitors you. That's really, that to me, that's scary. You know what I mean? And, and I think that to think that I've, I've been in places where I supervised people remotely and I supervised people who were in place. And by the way, I had that truck because I was in government. I had that tracking software. It made me very nervous because that software allowed me to see what people were doing online. So clearly somebody on their break could be shopping or, you know, at Macy's, uh, but clearly somebody else could be visiting websites that could be counterproductive to the work site. So it's not like it didn't happen when people were in person. Uh, and, and to make this kind of nightmare productivity paranoia, you know, I mean, am I going to feel nervous that people are tracking me or that my colleagues don't respect me and think I'm working? That That's not good in the long run for my either staying on a job or my really feeling loyalty to my employer here's and my pro team. Tip. Here's a pro tip, everybody. Get a cat, put it on your keyboard. <laughs> right? That's exactly right. And, you know, you can still watch television, but put your headphones in so nobody else can hear the background noise. Okay, I mean, give me 30 we, seconds we can get on around this. it. Give me 30 seconds on this. Um, the ball is in the employer's court on this, right? Particularly for the hybrid employee that is doing the job. So they've got to figure out how to monitor it, how to uh, how to aggregate, how to calculate it, how to figure out how productive they are. Uh, the, that's the burden for the employer right now, isn't it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And creating that kind of, of workplace climate that respects both the person who has decided or has been forced to come in five days a week or some iteration thereof, and the person who's been given 
full flexibility or partial flexibility to work remotely. Because there is a thing called productivity paranoia. Really interesting and always a pleasure to talk to you, Jay Notes. Always great to talk to you, John. Thanks so much. Dennis Rodkin now, who writes about real estate at Cranes. Visit chicagobusiness.com for more of his writing. He's the residential real estate expert in town. So you wrote about Michael Jordan's house. I did for Why the not? umpteenth time. Yeah, well, it's a great story. Well, he was or an awful story. He was having an anniversary. It was if we had had he he listed the house February 29th, 2012. This is not leap year, so we didn't have a February 29th, but last week, February 28th, March 1 was his 11th year of having that house on the market. Is it sitting empty? Uh, the real estate agent told me that he does use it. Um, I, I assume there are caretakers living on the property, but essentially it's been unused, empty for all that time. So you had some ideas for him to move it. I did. You know, it, I've written about it so many times that it's been for sale that what we did this time is, so it's 2023. His jersey number is 23. Can you get 23's house sold in 2023? So I talked to some real estate agents, um, those who have sold big properties, those who have sold big properties in Highland Park, where his mansion is. And um, I guess cut to the chase, I think the best one was uh, let him donate it. You know, he's he's probably invested in mental, emotionally invested in the price. He's now asking about $14.5 million. He was originally asking twenty nine. Um, he may have far more than that in it, and he's Michael Jordan. Give me what my house is worth. But he also recently made that big donation to make a wish to celebrate his 60th birthday. What if you donate the house and then uh, to, say, a children's sports organization, something like that, and let them sell it? Because you're coming down from what you invested in it to the current price. They would come up from zero to how much can we get out of it? And they would probably price it at something like four and a half, five million dollars, which is where most people say the price should be, at least nine million dollars less than he's asking. Really, that's um, I don't want to say all, but if he's asking how much did you say right now? He's asking it's 14 point the uh, it, I think it's 14.855. Those digits add up to 23. But it is originally listed at twenty nine million. Okay, and do you think that twenty nine to four? Do you think four or five million is a, a reasonable price? Real estate agents have told me it is. Uh, nothing in Highland Park. Again, he's in Highland Park. He's ab about two miles west of the Lake Michigan shoreline. Nothing off the shoreline in Highland Park has sold. The record uh, for an off the coast house in Highland Park is four point seven seven. Smaller property, his is six acres, 56,000 square foot house. But even so, uh, oh, and the other problem with his house that many people know is it's right next to railroad tracks. Um, there's a hardware store a few blocks. He's, he's not in some secluded setting. He gets some seclusion by the fact that he's on eight acres and next to him is a nature center. But uh, he's not in one of those fabulous locations where you think, wow, I'll pay $14.8 million to live here. Not for the view. Not for the view. Yeah, the view is of your house. Do the, this is the cachet of Michael Jordan's house help or hurt that, or is it indifferent? Well, after 11 years, I guess we have our answer, Yeah. right? I mean, I do think that somebody, whoever buys it, will, will be very proud to have the house that Michael Jordan had, but um, you have to be a Jordan fan and have multiple million dollars and want to live in that location, and that's a pretty narrow aperture to get through. 
I don't know what it's like inside. You've written a little bit about that, but anything after 11 years is a little dated anyway. You know, his real estate agent told me that he has updated it multiple times over the years, <laughs> that almost everything uh, has been redone except the primary bedroom. The assumption being when you move in, that's the first thing you're going to want to do. Yeah. Um, but the listing photos look pretty similar to what they did 11 years ago. That's just got to be so frustrating. Any of us who have sold a little bit of real estate for a lot, 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 lot less know the anxiety you go through. Now, he's insulated from some of that, but it still just feels like it, it must start to feel like an albatross for the guy. Well, you know, John, that's why, I, yeah, so he's worth over a billion dollars. Losing $10 million isn't going to, and, and he's Michael Jordan. Losing $10 million may not be seem like much. But to me, what it says is he's just like the rest of us, where we say, no, this is my house. I worked really hard. I made it look perfect, and I want it to go, you know, to somebody who can afford it and who likes it. I, I don't know that. He has never spoken to any press, including me, about the house. But it seems as if he probably has a pretty strong ego investment in the house and just isn't ready to say, okay, just take it. One last thing. I do like your idea about donating it. Give somebody give somebody five million dollars. I don't know if there's a. Well, there is precedent for that. That was the idea of a real estate agent, and there is precedent for that. John Hughes, the movie maker, when he died, his widow moved to a different house in Lake Forest, and she was trying to sell their mansion. Didn't get it sold. She donated it to Lake Forest Hospital, and they sold it. and And they did the same sort of thing: come up from zero rather than down from what you have invested in it. So they got about a four million dollar donation. Yeah. Um, and so Jordan could, I would assume, could do the same. Um, you know, a, a real estate agent told a friend of mine once when they were going through the anxiety, they didn't want to repaint rooms because they thought the rooms looked great, for instance. And the agent said, it's a house now. It's not your home. Right. It's a house. It's a thing that you're going to sell. Put blueberries on the roof if you think that's going to help them sell the house. But Jordan must be thinking, I'm Michael Flippin' Jordan. This house is my Taj Mahal, and some schlub from wherever is going to get it for four million. Exactly. What an insult! Yeah. Have you no respect for me? <laughs> that kind of thing. And, he yeah. has tried. So they've tried all kinds of marketing. First of all, for the first, I think, five years that it was on the market, they didn't mention his name. Oh, really? We, the press, knew. I mean, I had written about it, him building it years before. Everybody knew whose house it was, but, but his name wasn't in the listing. You know, they were sort of coy. Eventually, they added his name. They also, for a while, there was an offer of every pair, every style of Air Jordans. You would get one of each if you bought the house um and it just doesn't move hmm. hey if you're michael jordan give us a call 312-981-7200 tell us what you're thinking now what do you think of dennis rodkin's ideas you have not heard back from him yet huh no i i have not you wrote about short-lived interest rate dip may have spawned a spike in home sales you mean that little dip we just had yeah Six weeks they, later, they went back up a little bit. Yeah, they went back up. So interest rates started the year at about 6.5%, went down to about 6.1%. Now they're back up about 66 I think. But in that time, so let's start from the other end. Uh, data that came out Monday, I look at the weekly sales data. The sales were much higher in the past week than in the previous weeks. Some of that is it's the end of the month and... Uh, some deals get closed, so the number usually goes up, but it went way up. There were more than twice as many homes closed last week than the week before. So when you look back at the timing 
uh, as one agent suggested I do, you see a lot of those deals would have been made at the time that interest rates were down. Why is that important? Well, it sort of points out that we are so interest rate sensitive. Your last guest was talking a little bit about that. Years ago, interest rates go up by a point, decades ago, go up by a point, go down by a point. It, it's not parlor talk. It's not me sitting here on the radio talking about it. And people were not quite as sensitive. But because we just went through a period of nearly 11 years when interest rates were very, very low, and then in 2022, they started skyrocketing and, and shut down a lot of the real estate market by skyrocketing, when they bumped down just a little bit, a lot of people said, well, I better get my deal made now. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and two agents told me, yeah, we had a whole lot of extra foot traffic when interest rates came down. I think some of them thought they were going to come down even farther, which we have seen they have not done. Says something about the pent-up demand, doesn't it? That it people does. People are just itching on the sidelines. We'll pick it up here in a minute. Dennis Rodkin, the residential real estate writer at Cranes. You can visit Chicago. What's the website? ChicagoBusiness.com for you. It's time for more business news on the Wintrust Business Lunch with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. The cheapest tax rate in the U.S. can be found in Alaska. That's according to a new study out by financial website WalletHub. The report compared the state and local tax rates of all 50 states against national medians. Alaska came out on top. The state also boasts the lowest tax on gas per gallon and no sales tax on food. The state with the highest tax rate was Illinois. The founder of the Mr. Beef stand in Chicago's River North has died. Joe Zucchero had been battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He died last Wednesday at the age of 69. He and his brother opened the stand on North Orleans in 1979. It grew in popularity and inspired the TV show The Bear. Zucchero's son says Mr. Beef will continue to operate. Facebook has started sending out an additional $30 payments to nearly 1 million Illinois users who successfully cashed their initial payments of $397 last year. It's part of that landmark biometric privacy settlement case. The additional payment is coming from $43 million left over after nearly 100,000 state residents filed claims but didn't cash the checks they were sent. Those checks had a void date of August. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Mm-hmm. And we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. You know, we hear a lot of noise when companies leave Chicago. Not so much, though, when they move in. Well, let's hear it for a fairly new kid on the block. We just opened our headquarters here in downtown Chicago. There's about 130 employees in our Chicago headquarters. We're expecting actually to continue to grow and, and build up to about 200 by the end of this year. Peter Cotter, CEO of Lactalis Heritage Dairy, and Lactalis is kind of a big deal in the dairy business. Uh, we are. I mean, Lactalis as a whole is the, the number one dairy manufacturer in the world. And it is huge. A $26 billion company with over 85,000 employees in 94 countries. And just over a year ago, it broke up its U.S. business into four divisions. And the one that chose Chicago as its base is the one Peter Cotter oversees. And while the company name, Black Calis Heritage Dairy, may not ring a bell with you, its brands will. Kraft natural cheese brands, your shredded cheese, your sliced cheese, your chunk cheese. It also 
contains the brands of Knudsen, Cracker Barrel, and Stonyfield and Siggy's. And down the aisle and around the corner in the deli section where the cheese is, um, shall we say, less pedestrian. Some of the brands that you might recognize would be brands like President Cheese as well as Galbani. Anyway, it's a big business and growing bigger right here in the loop. But we also have 750 employees across the country. We've got a site in Wausau, Wisconsin. One site is in Tulare, California and then also in Walton, New York. Lactalis Heritage Dairy just wanted to say, how you doing, Chicago? We want to raise the visibility of this corporate brand because it is a family company, the third generation of family ownership, a really great place to work. Are you hiring? Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to be able to source the talent from this area. What kind of jobs? From supply chain to manufacturing to financial, human resources, marketing, etc. Peter Cotter of Lactalis Heritage Dairy, perhaps the biggest cheese company you've never heard of. But now you have... From the farm to your belly, today's National Cereal Day. It's also National Crown Roast of Pork Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Some of you have texted in to 312-981-7200. Dennis was reminding us that the 11-year anniversary of Michael Jordan's house going on the market has come and gone, and the price has gone from 29 to $14 million. 14.8. And it's probably worth less than half of that. 630 said MJ's house would make a wonderful youth retreat. Put bunk beds in the bedrooms. Let the kids get exercise. You say... Uh, You're on a cul-de-sac of seven homes. I think the other six homeowners might not go. One of the things the real estate agent told me is that people are always coming up with these ideas for using it. But the problem is zoning, neighbors, you got to get all you got to get past those hurdles if you're going to do such a thing. It will cost someone millions to renovate a house if they don't want a basketball court, a gym, a game room in MJ's house. And another agent told me, why don't you just tear it down? That if you're buying six acres in Highland Park, you're spending a lot of money. You probably want something your own style. So what he said is, just tear the house down and sell it at land value. We what don't would, know what that what value would be. What would six acres go for? Uh, you know, I didn't calculate it. Wouldn't um, that go for a few million dollars? Yeah, that would still be a few million. Which, um, which then really hurts your feelings if the dirt is n- not much improved by the house on top of it. Yeah, a house that stood there for 30 years and was the home of an icon. Uh, you scrape it off the ground and pe- scra- scrape it off the site, and people say, yeah, now I'll take it. That I can, I can see that being a, a ding to Michael Jordan's ego. Although it would be maybe one of a few. One I mean, <laughs> in the meantime, you're still Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, here's a fun auction thing. I mean, so then strip it out of all of the things that you could say was Michael Jordan's. So you could say, this is a plank of wood from his home's basketball uh-huh. floor. This is the 23 in the Iron Gate. This was a brick in the house. I mean, it's a crazy world. I'll bet. Actually, I don't know how hot the market is for Michael Jordan these days, but you could make some money for a charity that way. Speaking of um, houses that are well or maybe not as well known, you wrote this story, Gold Coast Co-op with a hidden bar is on the market for the first time since 1945. What's the story on this one? Three generations have owned it. A federal judge bought it in, and his wife bought it in 1945. It's in a spectacular, one of the finest co-op buildings on Lakeshore Drive, built in the 1920s, built with a secret bar during Prohibition. 1500 North Lakeshore. 1500 North Lakeshore. Really a spectacular building. And this is a very nice uh, unit with beautiful plaster ceilings and woodwork and all sorts of things that most of it, we assume, is from the 20s. 
the, the woman who walked me through it is the granddaughter of the couple who bought it in the 1940s. When they died, her parents moved in in the 1980s. They have died, and so she and her four siblings are selling it. Third generation, and it looks as if it did. It's in good condition. I don't want to uh, ding it. It's in really good condition, but most of the finishes are from the 1920s. Which is really cool. Look at that floor in the kitchen. It's the black and white checkerboard, black and, the big yeah. tiles. And when you walk into the foyer, you have the... It's, what I really liked was a sort of an astronomical look of the foyer. You've got eight-pointed stars inlaid in the floor, and then you've got this giant sunburst of plaster in the ceiling. Uh, and all it, the refrigerators... They, they have put in a new refrigerator, but you still have the 1920s. Oh, icebox. They're like, yeah, they're, they look like lockers with glass doors. They've wow. got about six of those, and they've put wine and that sort of thing in them. Again, they've got real, or they've got modern refrigerators in there. Enormous rooms. Yeah. Too. What are they asking for this bad boy? Just under $1.3 They know that there have been units in that building sell for $5 million recently. They know you're going to have to, the kitchen, the baths. You're going to need to update, but the great news is you've got all these nice 1920s finishes intact. Huh. Um, what would be the side street? What beach are we looking at then? What, You'd be, you're looking out over Oak Street Beach. Oh wow! Well, you're a little north. You're looking out over the the uh, the bike path, and then on your left would be North Avenue Beach, and on your right would be Oak Street. But really, you're looking out at an un- unobstructed expanse of lake. Just big, beautiful rooms too. Um, Interest rates you talked about. What about the city investing $25 million to back mortgages on the west and south side? This is a really interesting story, John. Um, the city treasurer has put 25 or is putting $25 million, has already done $7 million, uh, of inv- The city inv- has about a billion dollars that it invests, um, and about $25 million of that will go to a fund that invests in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the big mortgage guarantee uh, agencies, and it's dedicated funding that goes to uh, loans for single-family homes on the west and south sides of Chicago. It Generally, you don't get to target it quite that way, but this fund is set up very specifically. And what the city treasurer said to me is, we're investing Chicago taxpayer payer dollars in Chicago taxpayers. There's a huge gap in ownership between white people and black people in Chicago, and the, its biggest... Uh, with single-family homes. So here she is targeting lending to uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly black to get single-family homes sold. Where commercial lenders don't like the risk. Where they, they have been very hesitant. Yeah, and this would be a way, this, this is a way to sort of lead the way in and say, look, you know, it's working. This isn't redlining? That is, that it's not the business of saying black people don't get the loans, but white neighborhoods do? This isn't the resolution to that old practice? Uh, I think this heals some of the the problems that developed from redlining. All the disinvestment from decades that followed, that happened during and followed redlining, this is a way to sort of start to remedy that by, uh, I don't think they're denying loans to any particular group. Which is what I'm describing. Yeah. It is primarily true that black people live in these neighborhoods and that black people own homes at a far lower rate than white, Hispanic, or Asian people, um, and that these are neighborhoods where lending is very sparse. So let's get, and home ownership, as we know, tends to stabilize a neighborhood. So let's help boost home ownership in these neighborhoods, and in particular, ownership of single family homes as opposed to condos, three flats. Hooray for that. 
That story is headlined, City Investing $25 Million to Back Mortgages on the West and South Sides at ChicagoBusiness.com. It's another Dennis Rodkin story, and it's another visit with you. As always, Dennis, keep telling those stories. Nice of you to come in today.